Hi there. Welcome back to the Liturgical Pentecostal. For the past few weeks, I've been dealing with topics that seemingly skirt around the edges of theology while still dealing with its practical application in the church. Today, however, I'll begin treating with more theological issues in earnest. To begin with, I thought I'd discuss the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I won't lie. I did not choose this at random. In my master's program, I'm currently taking a class on the Trinity, and so it's been on my mind a lot lately, for obvious reasons. But I wanted to dive into it and treat with it and see what I could pull out. And I know that the doctrine of the Trinity can be dense, but I will strive to make it as accessible as possible to everyone. The doctrine of the Trinity is the belief in one God existing in three co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial divine persons. Now, those three C terms can be a bit confusing, but what they mean is this. The persons of the Trinity are equal to one another in in order, rank, and position. They're mutually eternal, and they're of one being or of one substance. These three divine persons, as we call them, are known as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost for some denominations. A lot of times whenever people are trying to explain the Trinity, they use imagery and there's a common image that's used called the shield of the trinity and it helps outline god's complex triune nature the images of a triangle and on each of the points there are the three divine persons the father the son and the holy spirit and there are lines on the outside of the triangle connecting these three divine persons and what it says is the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. But there are connecting points from each of the divine persons to the center of the triangle, which state the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Trinitarianism has been the orthodox view of God for millennia at this point. However, it has not always been this way. In the late 2nd, early 3rd century, the early church fathers were trying to work out the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This led to the development of two modes of thought, though these are not obviously the only ones. Trinitarianism and Monarchianism. Now, Monarchianism is simply put the belief that God is one indivisible being uncompromisingly unified. The rise of monarchianism led to, the, led to church fathers such as Theophilus of Antioch and early Christian writers such as Tertullian outlining the orthodox teaching of their time. And these teachings have persisted to this day. In fact, Tertullian's defense of the doctrine of the Trinity is the oldest that we still have. Tertullian was a Christian in the late 2nd, early 3rd century. And the details of his life are a little murky, but he left behind a trove of work dealing with Christian teaching. 
In one of his works, Adversus Praxian, he responds to the Monarchian teachings of a man named Praxius. Tertullian refused to pull any punches whenever it came to dealing with this man. In the introductory chapter alone, he says of Praxius, By this, Praxius did a twofold service for the devil at Rome. He drove away prophecy, and he brought in heresy. He put to flight the paraclete, that is, the Holy Spirit, and he crucified the Father. Ouch. That is quite the response to Praxius. By denying the triune nature of God, Tertullian believed that Praxius dismissed the Holy Spirit and crucified the Father, without whom there is no resurrection of the dead. As a side point, if that's true, who then would there be to raise the Father? Tertullian's understanding of the Trinity is best expressed as processional divinity. The Father is God, the Son proceeds from the Father, and is therefore considered God as an expression of the Father. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, and is therefore considered God as an extension and expression of the Father and the Son. Tertullian's understanding of the Trinity admittedly is little represented, if at all, in the modern understanding of the doctrine, as it lacks the co-eternal and co-equal qualities attributed to the other divine persons. However, the doctrine continued to be refined over the centuries as church leaders dealt with more non-Trinitarian viewpoints. One fine treatment given the doctrine was that of the medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas's understanding of the Trinity, well, it's a bit different than Tertullian's. Namely because Thomas understood the nature of procession a bit differently. Where Tertullian believed that there was a time in which the Father was alone before creation, Thomas believed that the Father was never alone, but rather that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were eternally existing within the Godhead. Thomas explains this by saying that whatever is in something must be caused by the constituent principles of that essence. That is to say, and this is kind of analogizing it, our ability to laugh belongs to us as a species due to the essential characteristics of our species. What that means for the Trinity is that there never was a time when the Father was without the Son or the Holy Spirit because they are essential characteristics of God. Thomas likens this phenomenon into our thought capability. We are able to, we're able to maintain a thought without speaking it aloud, and yet we hear that thought in our heads. Still today, there are those who reject the Trinity. This is primarily found in the Latter-day Saints, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, Armstrongism, Christadelphians, the Unification Church, the Unity School of Christianity, and Scientology. However, it is not only found in these Christian offshoots. It's also seen in more mainstream Christian movements, such as the Oneness Pentecostals, the United Church of God, the Church of God International, and several others. The main reason that I hear from most people involved in these movements for rejecting the doctrine of the Trinity is that it just does not make sense. However, my response to such a statement is this. Why does God need to make sense? 
What I mean is this, if God is transcendent, why should his existence be the same as our own? When we state that God cannot be three and yet one, we are constraining him. Thomas had this to say about the nature of God. Since God is above all things, what is said of God should not be understood according to the mode of the frailest creatures, namely, bodies, but according to the likenesses of the greatest creatures, which are intellectual substances, though even the likenesses derived from these fall short in the representation of divine things. God is transcendent, meaning that he is above and beyond our comprehension. Why then? would he be incapable of existence completely alien from our own? The Assemblies of God has codified the belief in the Trinity into its 16 fundamental truths. In fact, it is the second of the 16 listed. In Bible doctrines, William Menzies and Stanley Horton state the one true God has revealed himself as the eternally self-existent I am, the creator of heaven and earth and the Redeemer of mankind. He has further revealed himself as embodying the principles of relationship and association as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The AG states that there is that in the Son that makes him the Son and not the Father or Holy Spirit. Likewise, there is that in the Holy Spirit that makes him the Holy Spirit and not the Son or the Father. And there is that in the Father that makes him the Father and not the Son or the Holy Spirit. Now you may ask, if that's the case, how can they be one and the same God? And again, I would say, simply because we cannot be three persons and yet one, ourselves, does not mean that God can't. Over the years, many have tried to come up with analogies to help believers wrap their minds around the nature of the Trinity. And some of these are quite popular. You might even recognize some of them. People have described God as a triangle, a three-leaf clover, an egg, the phases of water, a person's individual relational stations. That is, you know, someone is a father, they're a son and a brother. And I can go on and on, but each one of these falls short of capturing the majesty of the mystery of the Trinity. The best explanation I have heard only explains a portion of the Trinity's nature. Dr. Nathan Wood, former president of Gordon Divinity School, once explained it this way. If the dimensions of a room are taken as equal units, the length goes through the entire room, and so do the width and the height yet each is distinct. And to get the space that is the volume of the room, you do not add one plus one plus one and so getting three. Rather, you multiply one times one times one, which is still one. Even though it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, it is unwise to constrain God simply because we don't understand how his existence functions. Menzies and Horton in Bible Doctrines state that the unity found in the Trinity does not preclude the possibility and indeed the reality of compound personalities. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit may be distinct from one another, but they are each wholly 
God. One of the most important pieces of evidence that I have found in support of the Trinity during my studies is this statement, and again, this is from Menzies and Horton. The Trinity is a harmonious fellowship within the Godhead. This is also a loving fellowship, for God is love. But his love is an outgoing love, not a self-centered love. This kind of love demands that before creation, there had to be more than one person within the being of God. Considering all of this, what do you think? Do you believe in the Trinity? If so, how have you understood it? If not, why not? Have a great day.